everybody, and welcome back to Sounds of Science, a series of podcasts hosted by UCOPE, the European trade body representing small and mid-sized companies active in health technologies. My name is Dante, and I'll be your host on today's pod. Before moving forward, I kindly ask you to hit the subscribe button and also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to stay up to date on all of the latest news and initiatives within the world of European life sciences. On August 16th, 2022, U.S. President Joe Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law, marking the most significant health care reform since the Affordable Care Act. With it, significant changes are coming for drug pricing and payment in the United States. At the same time, the upcoming revision of the EU pharma package will have a significant impact on the competitiveness and predictability of the EU biopharmaceutical landscape. There are several gaping differences between the biopharma systems of the U.S. and the EU. For instance, it takes on average 150 days longer to get an innovative medicine approved in Europe than in the U.S., time that can be crucial for some patients. The EU pharmaceutical industry has long warned policymakers that it's lagging behind when it comes to innovation and losing its position in the global marketplace. It's evident that innovation is today's talking point. To understand what is happening in policy and regulatory developments in both the EU and U.S. markets and how they will impact on innovation, we've invited two of our partner members from across the pond to give us their first-hand perspective and touch about how we can learn from each other and build transatlantic bridges of innovation for life sciences. Today, we're joined by Justin Pine, Senior Director of International Affairs, Global IP and Data Policy from the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, or BIO. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. Nice to be here. We also have Ben Bradford, Vice President of Economic Development and Workforce at MassBio. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. And of course, our ever-present guest, uh, UCOP Secretary General Alexander Nath. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Dante. Pleasure to be here again. Okay, let's jump right in. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, is meant to be a step forward in improving the affordability and access to innovative treatments, but several provisions seem to impact drug pricing, among other things. Um, Ben, I guess let's start off with you from a a state-level perspective. What are the consequences for the U.S. biopharmaceutical industry, and how do you think the act will impact innovation? So I think I'll let let Justin talk about the U.S. as a whole, right? But as we look at Massachusetts, and let me lay a little bit of groundwork, recent FDA Um, releases stated that 60% of FDA-approved medicines for the last decade or the 2010s originated in the U.S., and most of those were were developed by small biotech companies, right? And when you look at the Massachusetts ecosystem, MassBio has 1,600 members, and 80% of our life sciences members have under 50 employees. So presumably, those are companies that are at an early stage and focused on innovation. Um, And we know that these drugs aren't always brought to market by the small biotechs. So if um, the larger companies who may do acquisitions of the small biopharmas see less of an availability to bring these products to market, it's it's really going to affect the Massachusetts market, which is driven by those small innovative companies. Oh, thanks for that. And it's it's important that you note how small and medium-sized enterprises are kind of key drivers of biopharmaceutical innovation. And I guess just moving forward, Justin, I guess from the national federal level, um, how do you feel the act will will impact innovation uh, in the U.S. as a whole? Well, 
Well, yeah, I think, you know, ultimately, you know, this is going to be, this is really devastating for, for patients that are, are waiting for, for new cures and, and new treatments, um, you know, has a, the potential here to really decimate R and D. Um, and so when we're, when we, we, you know, I think Ben did a great job there highlighting in Massachusetts and, and broadly speaking, the, the impact of small, medium-sized companies on the, 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 the pipeline of, of biotech innovation. I think these are, these, these are the companies that are um, potentially significantly exposed here. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a, f- a few studies that have come out. Um, I would encourage all um, that are interested in diving a bit more into this to check out um, bio.org slash toolkits um, where we have a, some some more information statistics but you know some estimates here are, are talking about um, that reductions in, in revenues caused by uh, this policy could lead to roughly 600,000 uh, lost biopharma jobs in the United States um, in, in just um, uh, a few years um, so by 2030 or so if I'm not mistaken so the impacts are, are potentially very, very real, uh, which is really disappointing when you look at, you know, U.S. leadership in the, in the life sciences. Again, you know, patients waiting for, for these cures and treatments. And um, when you look at uh, generally the, 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 the major economic footprint of the biotech sector across, um, um, across the United States. Um, so, yeah, so. Um, so it's a, it's a concern for sure. All right. Thanks for that. And I guess, uh, in contrast to the U S we can move forward, uh, to the, to, to the European side, Alex, uh, at the moment, the European commission is undertaking the most significant review of the pharmaceutical legislation in two decades, uh, currently revising the general pharmaceutical legislation, the OMP regulation and the pediatrics regulation, I guess, um, f- what should biopharma companies operating in or about to enter the EU take note of, and how will these legislations impact innovation and competitiveness overall? We we definitely hope that the Commission will strike the right balance between uh, ensuring that the European markets remain innovative and competitive, and also safeguarding uh, uh, patients' interests and 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 safeguarding. Uh, uh, safety, quality, and efficacy. It's really important that um, the Commission strikes the right balance here. We have seen some um, some discussions in Brussels, which are partly worrying in that sense that um, uh, IP rights should be uh, shortened in general, and then uh, uh, under certain conditions, the IP rights could go up again to the level where they are currently. So this is really something. We, we do see uh, with not just with interest, but also with some concern. On the other hand, let me also mention that there are some positive uh, aspects in, in what is discussed uh, currently in Brussels about the general pharmaceutical legislation. Um, there is this um, idea to borrow a bit the voucher idea from the US, uh, at least for some medicines. And I think that's a very positive trend at the end of the day to ensure that um, IP rights are not only granted, but also that uh, for smaller compounds and for smaller companies, they can uh, they can actually sell the voucher to, to other companies so they can benefit from the uh, exclusivity rights. Um, also, some other 
trends uh, which we see positive are in the regulatory space. There is um, that idea to uh, really um, put more emphasis on prime, uh, the priority medicines review, and also the rolling review, which EMA has used to make sure that we get speedy access to the vaccines in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So there are some uh, positive trends, but also some more worrying trends uh, in, in that um, what we're expecting, the general pharmaceutical legislation, which is likely to be um, to be released on the 29th of March, um, so in not too far of a distance. And we really hope uh, that US companies uh, will keep themselves very much uh, aware of those developments. They will take time to really materialize because there is a legislative process in Brussels, which we have to follow. And we're expecting that the new legislation will be in place only in a couple of years from now. But it's really important that also we're sending the right message to uh, innovative US companies to ensure that they feel um, attracted by European markets. We have seen that uh, in the in the last decade that especially in seven gene therapies, uh, um, US companies have chosen to come to Europe first and we need to make sure that this is, remains to be the case in the future. So really important that we are striking the right balance in the general pharmaceutical legislation. Well, thanks for that, Alex. It's a, it's a great overview of the kind of European situation at the moment and of course, um, the proposal of the legislation is scheduled to be, I think, come out in about three weeks now. So it's it's a very timely issue. And I guess I just want to shift back to the American uh, perspective. You know, we're always talking about uh, European policy and regulatory environments here on the on the blog on the on the podcast. But I guess from an American's perspective, um, Justin, we'll start off with you. But what issues are American companies most concerned about when entering or planning to enter into Europe? Well. Um... I guess I'll, I'll cover this um, from from two angles, if you will. There, and I think Alex really really did a great job covering sort of the commercial consideration. So, thinking from a commercial standpoint, we really want to, you know, ensure that that U.S. companies, you know, are able to to access the you know European markets, get their get their drugs approved, and and launch and, and, and have reasonable pricing reimbursement mechanisms in place. Um, we need, we need success stories for the, for the industry. Um, and we should, you know, um, you know, we'd like to see more and more, uh, of these success stories of, you know, us innovation, us, us companies successfully entering the, the European markets and, and, um, um, and, and cultivating relationships with local uh, entrepreneurs and, and and biotechs in Europe, right? And 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 helping to, um, you know, be part of and and um, be part of the, the the growing sort of um, entrepreneurial spirit, um, you know, in the in the EU. So, from a commercial standpoint, there are a lot of issues. Alex also pointed out the. Um, uh, um, growing intellectual property concerns, you know, IP is, you know, the strength and, and predictability of, of an existing IP regime is a, is a major factor for, for companies and for the industry at large. And we are following very closely some of the, the new developments um, uh, and discussions around compulsory licensing or discussions around, you know, regulatory data protection, um, um, you know, orphan drug market, um, you know, exclusivity. Um, and so these, these are a number of factors and considerations. I think we're, we're following that, um, that are, are of, of some concern. 
um, and, and things that I think companies are taking taking into consideration and, and, and following a bit more closely. The you know so that's on on sort of the the commercialization side, but I, I'll add too that you know we as a global society have really benefited from robust um, scientific collaboration between partners in the EU and the United States. And increasingly, um, you know, it's, uh, there are challenges um, just on the early stage R&D side to, to get some of these partnerships off the ground. And to some degree, that is um, in part due to um, the implementation um, of GDPR across across uh, EU member states and and some of the challenges with the, the lack of a harmonized approach to GDPR to um, you know efficiently um, you know run um, certain clinical studies or 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 uh, initiate uh, cross border collaboration scientific collaborations and and so I think that um, you know and that's that's a private sector you know issue and also I think that the NIH um, has been pretty vocal from the U.S. side on on some of the challenges with post GDPR implementation, getting getting some research projects off the ground. So those are some considerations as well, and I think that sort of feeds into this emerging European health data space framework that is simultaneously, I think, very very exciting and promising, um, but that also you know has some. Um, there are some questions about, you know, IP rights in the health data space. There are also some questions about, you know, the 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 importance of and the the ability to for for there to be, you know, robust cross border uh, uh, scientific collaborations. And so I think um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can strengthen that and strengthen the the broader, you know, transatlantic scientific relationship, you know, for for the benefit of our our economies and and most importantly for for patients that will will benefit from from these innovations. No, I thank you for that. I'm definitely sure that it will, and you know we'll we'll continue to collaborate on on different stuff, especially stuff regarding around kind of digital health, EHGS, which are which are quite pertinent to a lot of American companies at the moment. Um, but I just wanted to follow up. I guess what are some of your current conversations at the state level with um, European companies focused on at the moment? So. I think Justin hit on all the right notes of where Massachusetts companies are thinking about Europe from a commercial and regulatory perspective. You know, as we think about how Massachusetts can support European companies, uh, a lot of it is based on things we take for granted here in Massachusetts, right? Uh, we have the support mechanisms in place for companies to really uh, be able to focus on their science and focus on the, the business of science, right? Because there's such a robust real estate community and legal community here in Massachusetts. So as companies, European companies are thinking of ways to explore the U.S. market, right? Massachusetts is, is a prime target for um, geographical reasons, right? Where, the, where Massachusetts is, Boston is one of the first stops on an airplane into the U.S., um, so we have companies trying to figure out how do we play in this sophisticated, mature, uh, well-connected market. So finding ways in which MassBio can support their introductions to the community, 
their especially for small companies, introductions to large pharma who they may looking to be partner with. MassBio has a number of programs and we can touch on those a little bit later. Um, but it's really about access and how do we get involved with these uh, outstanding hospital systems and the research institutions and the established biopharma community. Those are the big things that we're facing. Obviously, they want to understand the U.S. regulations and regulatory bodies. Um, so it, it's much similar to what our companies are facing going to Europe, um, but also understanding how to fit into this established market. Oh, that's an excellent point. Thank you for that. I'm sure we'll, we'll probably touch upon that a bit more in the, in, the, in the forthcoming questions. But Alex, I wanted to ask, I mean, you kind of already did a, G, a brief general overview of the European system at the moment, but I guess in comparing and contrasting, what does the U, EU do well in comparison to the US? And what do you think that Europe should take from the American side to improve our ecosystem? I think what we can learn from the US side is really um, at, at at the level of financing innovation, I think the US, US is way ahead when when compared to Europe. When you look at the, the Massachusetts uh, environment, but also the US in general, there is a that there is a higher willingness of investors to invest in, in in pharma and biotech than what we see in Europe. And I think that's something which is really important. And, and it relates to um, the predictability of the markets, the predictability of actually getting market access in, in, the, in these countries, in the US and also in European countries. It also relates to uh, certainty and security about IP rights. We need to know um, at an early point in time uh, what the duration of exclusivities are for um, innovative compounds. And I think that's really important to take the investor's perspective in that respect. Um, I think what we've been doing quite well in, in Europe is, is really making sure, and I talked briefly about it before, um, to make sure that we get innovative products um, authorized by the European uh, Medicines Agency and the Commission. Uh, for example, we've seen a couple of ATMPs launched first in Europe. Um, we need to fine-tune our system, especially when it comes to cell and gene therapies that patients in all the EU countries actually also get access from the reimbursement perspective. There's a lot we have to do in that respect. But uh, I'm also um, partly optimistic when it comes to the EU HTA in that sense that it's a one-stop shop for the clinical assessment for innovative therapy. So uh, we don't have to undergo 27 different systems at the uh, to, to uh, safeguard or better to say to prove clinical effectiveness of innovative compounds. So that will be a one-stop shop at the EU level. We need to make sure that we get it right there, that we have the right methodology also to take into, uh, in, uh, into account um, the specifics for cell and gene therapies and even more often medicines in rare disease areas are different from non-rare disease areas in that sense that there is a, a much less of a know-how about the disease itself. It's more difficult to find the right patients uh, which could benefit from the treatment. And, and I think that needs to be factored into the EU HGA methodology. So that's really important. But it, uh, bottom line, I think it, it is positive that we are having um, the opportunity really here to have a partly a one-stop shop when it comes to the clinical um, 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 effectiveness of a, uh, of a medicine. Because at the end of the day, it's the same medicine. It's approved by the European Commission for the 27 EU countries. And we hope also that by, by having that one-stop shop system for the clinical effectiveness um, that we gain better access in, in other 
in other countries, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I talked briefly about um, the the uh, pharmaceutical uh, package, and I wanted to emphasize one thing, which I think we did quite well in Europe. It's the European reference networks, uh, where we have been clustering know-how for, for rare diseases in certain centers in Europe, where we have been facilitating an exchange of uh, a medical know-how. The best experts are actually um, clustered in, in one centers. That's where the know-how is. And, and um, I think that's really a very good example of what good coordination and clustering of know-how can do in Europe. And you don't have to change legislation for doing that. You just have to connect the right dots in, in order to make it possible. Um, yeah, I mentioned there are some shortcomings when it comes to cross-border healthcare, especially when it comes to cell and gene therapies that we need to make sure that patients can also cross uh, borders in Europe and uh, still get access from their home country reimbursement system if they are treated in other countries because there is a lack of expertise uh, in the home country. Um, there is uh, the need really also to make sure that we get the EU HTA right. But um, I'm also optimistic that we will have, and I'm really looking forward also to that discussion. I'm, I'm optimistic that we have a good, we will ha have a good discussion with the European Commission, with the Parliament, and also with Council to really talk about uh, um, the revision of the pharma legislation to ensure that we get it right for an innovative industry, which is really important uh, in Europe, uh, but also of course in the US. No, thanks, Alex. And it's really important because most of the conversation now in Brussels, I guess, revolves around uh, like feigning competition or waning competition against the U.S. and China. And I guess it's first really important to highlight what our successes are and then how we can improve upon them, especially in comparison to our partners over in the U.S. And just kind of touching upon that, I want to move to Kendall Square in Cambridge, Mass. I had the chance to visit it for the first time last year. Um it's always been seen as a shining example of life science innovation in the world. And uh, Ben, I guess I wanted to ask, how did or how does MassBio work with the Bostonian and Massachusetts governments to create such a thriving ecosystem? And what do you think or how can we learn here in Europe to kind of emulate and kind of copy what you guys do? Yeah, I think that you know, Kendall Square being the, the a very highly thought of um, biotech hub um, partially is, is happenstance, but partially has been intentional. Um, we have the luxury of sitting directly next to two of the best universities in the world, right? Um, and that's not something every region or municipality is going to be able to do. Um, but what we have done and what industry has done here in government, municipal government has done, is make this industry predictable. Um, and make development predictable. Um, you rewind to when MassBio was created and there were restrictions being placed on what companies doing genetic engineering could do in the city of Cambridge. Um, and the thought was that those restrictions were going to be um, a hindrance to expansion of, of genetic engineering in the city because people were scared of what might be coming out of the sewers. Um, but what it did do is these restrictions on zoning and permitting and you know, recombinant DNA use uh, allowed companies to understand what was expected out of them and meet the requirements of municipalities. And this is something MassBio continues to do with our BioReady Communities programs where we are helping cities and towns outside of Cambridge, Boston, uh, set up regulations and zoning practices that will uh, encourage companies to expand out of Boston and Cambridge, right? 
one of the the downsides of being the the most sought after real estate for biofarm in the world is the price of doing business in Cambridge. Um, but what we know is you can be successful doing this in anywhere in Massachusetts, um, as long as what you're doing is predictable. So Mass Bio continues to work with municipalities to help them set up the zoning practices to encourage companies to come from a state perspective, right? Um, we go back to, um, you look at what happens in Washington, D.C., right? Um, and all we hear coming out of D.C. is Democrats and Republicans not seeing eye to eye and having different perspectives and different goals. But as you look at the life sciences industry here in Massachusetts, the legislation for the life sciences initiative was originally written by Mitt Romney, who was a Republican. It was originally funded by Deval Patrick, who was a Democrat. It was reauthorized and refunded by Charlie Baker, who's a Republican. And we expect the next iteration to be reauthorized and refunded by Maura Healy, who's a Democrat. Um, so the idea that regardless of party, you view the life sciences industry as something that buoys the economy here in Massachusetts is really something that has been helping companies, again, um, with predictability, um, being able to know what to expect, being able to know that your partners in government will be a resource to you has been huge. And it's not something we see every day in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I'm no expert on this, but what we see with regime changes in Europe um, regularly uh, and having different ideas of what's important um, may not actually help the growth uh, of of industry. And as we think about from a, a micro level at the state house here in Massachusetts, yes, we have we go up there and we we talk drug pricing and access and all that. But how many people are experts on that in the state house of Massachusetts? Not a ton. Um, but what they are experts on is workforce and development in their communities. And if we can show them that this is an industry that has great paying jobs, jobs that are not just jobs, jobs that are careers um, and development for their communities outside of Boston and Cambridge, where a lot of investment goes, um, it, it makes it a whole lot easier for them to support our industry. No, thanks for that. I think you, you really highlight the benefits of focusing on people, uh, the system, and also a mutually beneficial relationships. So thanks for that. Um, I guess, Justin, I want to I wanna, uh, pass it over to you. From Bio's perspective, um, do you utilize Mass Bio's success as kind of a blueprint when working to help other state bio groups to kind of grow their ecosystem? Or do you work directly with Mass Bio to help? How does it work? Yeah, so well, we we have a great great relationship with with Mass Bio and with other um, uh, state biotech associations. Um, but I'll 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 get into that a bit more. But I just want to um, state, you know, responding to your in your in initial question there to uh, to Ben um, and you know referencing Kendall Square. Uh, I used to I am a uh, native uh, Bay Stater from Massachusetts, so. I'm very much familiar with with the great the ecosystem there, and I used to work as a research scientist in, in Kendall Square as well. So um, it's really really great to hear you know um, about all the work at MassBio and and to see how that area has has transformed so much just in a short time that I've really been um, been a professional here. So um, there's a lot to see, and 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 I should add since I'm 
sharing this personal information. Uh, my, you know, my family is also from from Portugal, uh, and I received a uh, a Fulbright scholarship to do uh, research in in the EU. Um, so I've, I've I've been able to see see things uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, and um, um, so so everything been been shared there, and sort of your your questions there, Dante, are very very interesting and resonate with me at a, on a personal level as well. Um, you know, like I said, there's there's a lot of great things coming out of Massachusetts. Um, um, we you know, we aim to be a resource for MassBio. MassBio is a resource for, for us as well as Bio um, here in DC. Um, and we have a, a similar relationship with other state associations. We, we uh, organized something called the Council of State Bioscience Associations, um, where most states, almost virtually pretty much all states, um, um, all 50 states in the United States have a uh, state biotech association. And we bring them together through this uh, through this uh, council of state uh, associations um, to really share um, best practices, um, keep a a, a a a community together where we're we're able to um, um, where we're able to to really um, keep each other posted and updated on on policy developments, uh, new opportunities, new you know new challenges and um, and share learnings from from each other, and I think that's been really, really helpful. Um, and it's a really active group, um, and and there really is uh, you know a robust bioscience you know uh, biotech community across across the United States, uh, in all the states. And so I think a lot of a lot of uh, associations look to Massachusetts, and and I think that there's a lot to to learn from from their success. So. Um, yeah, definitely, um, definitely a great, a great resource. And, and I would encourage you all, if, if you're interested to see, um, some of the joint bio and, and, um, uh, uh, some of the efforts there, um, uh, with the council of state biotech association. So joint bio, mass bio, and, and, and the other state associations, we, we put out some best practices. We also do some, um, joint analyses on the economic footprint of the biotech uh, sector in the United States across the 50 states. And I think these are really, really helpful tools for, for policy and advocacy and, and ultimately for, for uh, investment um, as well. No, thanks for that, Justin. I think you have a unique perspective, especially in this case, having worked on both sides of the Atlantic. So thanks for that. Uh, um, just kind of moving forward. Um, President Biden's executive order aims to build a thriving, secure global bioeconomy with partners and allies. Um, I guess as we're current partners within the field, how can organizations like us, UCO, Bio, and MassBio, leverage our expertise to ensure biotech benefits all of citizens in the U.S. and the EU? I know we kind of all spoke about it a little bit, but I guess perhaps, Ben, you can just elaborate about some of the uh, how we can leverage kind of your expertise in the field to uh, enhance biotech benefits. So at the end of the day, MassBio is patient-driven. It might be a hashtag that we've trademarked, um, but it's considered in every single thing that we do, um, whether that's companies that are our members, whether that's partnerships that we develop with Bio and UCOPE. Um, so I think conversations like this are, are great to inform each other of challenges that uh, companies within our regions are facing, right, as we talk about the IRA earlier, even still, we, we talk about 
patients, right? Because reductions in potential of um, return on investment is going to take money away from unproven ambitious science. And that's where mass bio um, or Massachusetts shines. Um, and we know that venture investment will go to places where they have an IRA or good ROI. Um, and that includes internationally. So if we want to take um, talent away from what's happening here in Massachusetts or investment away from Massachusetts, it may go somewhere where it's not going to advance as fast. So understanding these and getting the perspective of bio is a great opportunity. Um, but MassBio also has the expertise um, and the ability to bring together a lot of different people um, through our innovation programs. We run a partnering program where large companies, domestic, Massachusetts, international, can come to us and source one-on-one -on -one meetings with early stage innovators, whether it's early stage companies or whether it's um, PIs or researchers, um, they can do so with MassBio. Um, and we also run an accelerator program to connect companies from all over the world to mentors here in Massachusetts and share that expertise with the core goal of at the end of the day being to help sick people, right? We don't care who, who cures cancer. It could be Boston, it could be Belgium, it could be somewhere in California. It doesn't matter to us. So these communication mechanisms and cross-border partnerships are something that at the end of the day is helping patients. Thanks for that. It's always important to, to reiterate that the bottom line is always the patient. And, uh, and Justin, I guess, just to continue on what Ben had said, how do you, I guess, suggest we can leverage each other's expertise to ensure biotech benefits patients in the end? Yeah, well, I think Ben made a lot of great points there. And, you know, it's patients, you know, in the US, patients in the EU, but patients around the world, really, that stand to benefit from, um, from our, our cures and, and treatments from the innovation of our, our member companies in our sector. Um, that again, as was mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, much of that innovation is uh, majority of that innovations uh, originating with small, medium sized companies. So I think I think you know, UCOPE, MassBio, Bio, given our, our membership and, and, and um, in fact, we, we represent, you know, uh, these small companies and, and innovators in this space. I think it's, it's really great to help, you know, these conversations like this, um, I think, can be, you know, important, um, uh, important tool for, for these small companies to see what's possible, to you know, foster, you know, navigate um, these international, um, you know, waters, if you will, find partners and, 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 um, um, and learn from, you know, uh, other actors and, and share best practices. I think that's, that's um, really important and, and really important for, for companies to know that we, we are all in touch and, and collaborating for the, for the benefit of patients um, uh, globally. And I think to the extent that we can, cultivate even stronger um, scientific collaborations between partners in, in the U.S. and the EU is a win-win um, for, for all of us, uh, uh, for the companies, and, and again, most importantly, for, for patients globally. No, so thanks I, for I that, Justin. That and also we, is helping towards that. 
Yeah, of course. <laughs> and we also appreciate your your visits. I think what bi quarterly or or biannual visits to Europe, where we could yeah. discuss more and have a greater dialogue as well. Absolutely. And also, and Ben, also, I forgot to mention that I I saw your benefits up close in Boston as well. One of your pharma days is quite impressive. What you do and what you offer to to your members and patients alike. So keep up the good work. And um, and Alex, I guess I just wanted to follow up. How do you think that we could, just to follow up what Justin and, and Ben said, how could we continue to leverage our expertise to ensure that, uh, you know, we increase awareness about what we're doing on both sides of the Atlantic and uh, create a better ecosystem for patients all over? Yeah, I think that's really an important point, and I appreciate the opportunity, Ben, to be in this in this uh, um, call today uh, and podcast. Uh, Really, it's important that this is not a one-way street. We need to work together. And I think Ben uh, has put it very nicely. It, it doesn't matter where the innovation stems from. We need to help each other. We need to help our companies to navigate the systems on, on both sides of the Atlantic. So it's definitely not a one-way street. We need, to, um, we need to make sure that also a lot of European companies are much better informed by working with bio and mass bio to navigate the U.S. system, to be able to uh, come over to the U.S. And, and, and bring their products there. Likewise, of course, the other way around, U.S. companies coming to Europe. Um, I'm still quite a bit optimistic about uh, that, we, that we need to see, that we can steer these discussions, these political discussions in the right directions. But I think when I listen to what we've been hearing from the U.S., there is a lot we can learn from. It's about uh, prioritizing healthcare in, in policymaking. It's about prioritizing innovation in, in policymaking and, and being open for innovation. We had once uh, um, a head of the European Medicines Agency, which, which, said, which, which mentioned very clearly as a policy, regulatory needs to follow science. We need to open for science uh, and, and innovations in that respect. And, and we have some good news. I mean, we have currently the first CRISPR-Cas9 product being uh, under assessment by the European Medicines Agency. So there is an openness for innovation in Europe. We, um, But I just wanted to make that point that um, I think there's a lot we can learn also when it comes to financing healthcare, prioritizing healthcare. Um, there's a lot we can learn from the US. Um, yeah, I mean, really um, appreciate very much the opportunity to be here today. And uh, also appreciate the opportunity to be in the U.S. a couple of times this year to to uh, meet with colleagues, meet with new interesting companies uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. Thanks for that, Alex. Um, and I guess as an end note to the pod, um, the annual Bio International Convention is taking place between the 5th and 8th of June this year in Boston, Massachusetts. So, Justin, what can guests expect this year? Well, it you know... Uh, for those that are not familiar, by the, the, the International Convention is the largest um, uh, biotech conference uh, globally. Um, uh, we uh, Last year was the first uh, year uh, since COVID where we had uh, our, our in-person event, and it was a, a huge success. Uh, we had a, um, um, a great participation from uh, uh, uh people uh, from around the world, really. Um, historically, about uh, around 50% of the, the attendees come from um, our ex-US, so are, are coming from abroad. And so, you know, it's a great opportunity there for, for global collaborations, you know, um, kind of going back to your last question, 
great opportunity there for uh, to build relationship relationships with partners uh, around the world, drive research, uh, uh, drive commercial um, uh, efforts there. Um, so I think we'll we'll have a great meeting. It's in it's in Boston, which we're really excited about. Um, so so really look forward to to having everyone there and um, uh, you know growing the event even more. Um, Really looking forward to it as well. And and Ben, since it's also in Massachusetts this year, um, what does MassPile have in store to showcase its world-class innovation hub? We couldn't be more excited to have the first post-pandemic bio in Boston um, this year, right? It was in California last year, and we have a, a healthy competition with our partners in California with Biocom and CLSA. Uh, so we're going to have to one-up everything that they did in California and hopefully set a new record for attendees. I know last time it was in Boston, we had over 22,000 people here. And wow. we really showcased what a world-class ecosystem can look like um, to emerging ecosystems, to companies that want to explore this. Uh, you'll find our booth right next to Bio's booth so people can stop by and say hi to both of us, understand how we can be helpful to their uh entering of the U.S. market, uh, but there's also going to be a focus on partnering, and it's something we've touched on throughout this call. There's going to be opportunities for companies to partner with the large pharmas in Massachusetts within our state of possible booth, uh, so that's a good opportunity, and then we'll have a big stage where you'll hear from people from industry and academia, and important to this conversation, government. Again, a lot of what makes Massachusetts successful is having that partnership between those three pillars. Uh, so hearing keynotes from our elected officials will be interesting about how, how Massachusetts has done what it's done and how we're going to continue doing what we're doing here in Massachusetts. That's great to hear. And I definitely hope that you can surpass what your cousins in the West did last year. So I wish you nothing but the best. And Alex, uh, UCOPE will be in attendance this year. And I just want to ask, what will UCO be focusing on in its panel sessions? Yeah, we, we, we will be there, definitely. That's for sure. I will come with my colleagues, uh, Victor and Matthias, uh, attending on behalf of UCO. Um, we, we're organizing, we're about to organize two panel sessions. Um, one is about the EU HDA. I talked about that briefly before. A very important piece of legislation which will come into effect in 2025 for uh, uh, um, companies which are in the innovative space in cell and gene therapies and oncology indications. I will also, we will also have a panel around orphan drugs, uh, HMPs and, and the, the, the changes in legislation that I talked about before. Um, so it will definitely be an informative and wide overview of extremely relevant topics uh, to health technology developers, uh, both operating uh, in and looking to enter into the EU. So definitely, uh, Check it out if we're at Bio in Boston in uh, June, early June this year. I'm really looking forward to, to meet you uh, there. Well, that's, I guess that's it for today's pod. Um, well, there is still a lot of work to do to improve the affordability and access to treatments for American and European patients alike. This episode kind of proved that there are positive notes to take forward and that transatlantic partnerships can close gaps and also build bridges to drive innovation within our biopharmaceutical biopharmaceutical ecosystems and also deliver to patients at the end. So, uh, Justin, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Dante. And, and thanks, Alex, for all the collaboration as well. Thank you. Looking forward to, looking forward to seeing you soon in Brussels. And Ben, 
from MassBio. Appreciate you also for joining us today as well and providing the perspective from the Massachusetts side. Of course. Thanks for having us, Dante and Alex, and look forward to continuing to work together. We appreciate your continued support and collaboration. Look forward to seeing you both in Boston for the Bio Convention. Um, Alex, thanks a lot as always, and uh, we'll speak to you guys soon. Have a great day. Thank you all very much. That's it for this episode of Sounds of Science, the podcast that keeps you acquainted with the most pressing policy files and news in the world of European life sciences. We are UCOPE, the European trade body driving innovation for smaller companies working in the field of health technologies. You can stay up to date with us by engaging with us on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting our website, www.ucope.org. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you next time. Be well. Be well.